Proceed with all due caution by Sarah Claire Conlon Narrated by Karen Esposito Spring, March, April, May And the darkness fell, and the mist rolled in, and the moonrise was shrouded, and the dogs rattled, and the tide turned, and the boats rocked on their moorings, and the boys yawed on their chains, and their bells clanged like churches calling out to congregations across the yawning mouth of the river. Flood tides flow strongly in the loon and can run at five knots on springs. The flooding tide will sweep you eastwards if you're not careful. Keep your wits about you. A boar sometimes surges inland, a tidal wave cresting on the oncoming fresh water, flowing from its Cumbrian source out into the salty Irish sea. On the flood, a southeasterly current sets out onto the jagged reef of Pluviscar, a rocky outcrop at the entrance of the deep water channel, at the approach to the estuary, at the edge of the world. This rock ledge is where you'll find me. Clamber out over the sandstones, siltstones and mudstones uncovered at low tide and say hello. I'm there all weathers, although I won't take it the wrong way if you choose a fine day. Nobody really wants to be out and about when Boreas is on the bluster. Still, all company is welcome out here at Cockersand. It can be a lonely stretch, especially when Beatrice is back up at the White Door Cottage, tending to young Bob and getting the tea on, and Tom is busy fettling his nets or helping John paint the loon whammel ready for the salmon season. Dealing with those clinker boards isn't a five-minute job. Mind how you go, I've seen my fair share take a tumble on the seaweed slime and slicing shells sink into the sucking sands. Flashing white every two seconds. 53 degrees, 58 minutes. 0.894 seconds north. 002 degrees, 52 minutes, 0.959 seconds west. Initial approach is made from the Loon Deeps at the edge of Morecambe Bay. Various charted drying dangers extend close along the Loon Deeps' southern edges. Vessels arriving at the River Loon number 1 buoy, a West Cardinal buoy, should not proceed up to Glasson until one and a half hours before high water on spring tides and one and a quarter hours on neaps. The buoy channel from Pluviscar to Glasson Dock is constantly changing and extreme caution is necessary when pushing upriver. Proceed with all due caution. Do not be surprised if the Boyd Channel differs from that on the latest Admiralty chart. Mr Beatty can tell you more about that. He's your man for up-to-date navigational information. On the 5th of March 2016, Mr Beatty was not consulted. We were building up to the first highest equinoctial spring tide that year, 10.20 metres on the 11th of March, and with super high tides come super low. It's a combination that can catch folk out, on the water or on the land. Beatrice was laughing her head off when she told me about the fancy sports car that the inflowing sea took for a boat over at Sunderland Point. The windswept peninsula on the Morecambe Bay side of the estuary, you can just make out from here. It's called Sunderland for a reason, Beatrice cracked. A sunder means a part, and that tip of rock is cut off from the mainland twice a day when the tide comes in and laps at the villagers' toes. They used to make ropes, sails and anchors at a Sunderland, if you need more clues. Not that she was being mean-spirited. Lighthouse keepers by nature tend to be kind souls, guardians as they are. She was merely noting that some might think they're the most important thing around, when they need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Here at the water's edge, the picture is huge. A vast panorama extending before our eyes. 
we often watch mountainous waves whipped up by the howling fury, soaring beyond gale force driving towards us. We hear the dull roaring sound of fear as it fetches our way. We take the brunt of the Irish Sea's might. We brace for impact. These storms are widow-makers, sea defence-breakers, gobbling whole gabions of twisted metal and rock, eating the way inland, swallowing up villages, sinking ships, crew and cargo. Cast an eye over those trees, barrowed inland to the shape of an anvil cloud, battered by sea winds, bowing to the east. Britain is more prone to shipwrecks than practically anywhere else on earth, and our stretch of rugged coast has claimed more than its fair share of victims. We feel the might, the weight of water. We spit out the breakish taste from salt crashing into fresh. We smell the invader as it eventually retreats, and we can finally catch the breath we thought we might lose. On the 5th of March, we could breathe easy. It was a day of sunny spells, scattered clouds, a spot of rain in the air around tea time, but nothing to write home about. By no stretch warm, still early days for the year, but it was a Saturday and there were plenty of visitors, not least the migrating birds and their entourage of twitchers who landed at Cockerham Sands, or Cockersons, to pay homage. The little hand had yet to move us forward into British summertime, so the glinting binoculars weren't around for long, and with the moon phase at waning crescent, light was at a minimum once the sun had set, and they flitted off almost as they arrived. A couple of bats went fishing for insects as dusk fell, flickering briefly back and forth like the swifts come May, joining the sand martins already colonising and later making way for the swallows. A fox flashed past. To be honest, there wasn't all that much to report, but it's when it's quiet that you hear things go bump in the night, and, well, that was the night things went bump. As the ornithologist snuck inland, and the changing tide gave the dumpy sandalings and other remaining shorebirds a window for sleep, I too took a catnap. Those waves, stippling, dappling in the failing light, gentle slopping, lapping sounds. Soporific. Feeling sleepy. Lulling. A false sense of security. My stones are said to be hewn from the surrounding slab of plover scar, and this particular evening I found out quite a lot about scars. They painted me white above the waterline to stand out against the dark cliffs behind and the darker hills beyond. My light characteristic was made to match. A flash of white every two seconds. Mounted on reflectors pointing seaward. The beam can be seen six nautical miles off. My focal height is six metres above sea level. Although the bulk of my conical tower is eight, with twin galleries, a glossy black lantern and a weather vane up top. Like the cottage, they painted me white as it's easier to spy come dark. For the ones crossing the strand at low tide to maintain the lights and for the ones crossing the sea days at a time to deliver goods. None of this seemed to matter that Saturday evening. I was in for a bruising, whether I liked it or not. I've been here since 1847. The rear or high or upper light followed a while after and we became a team. Leading lights that sailors would line up for safe passage. He was built further up the beach on the foreshore at Cockersand, next to the Abbey Lighthouse Cottage on Slack Lane, where the Parkinsons, Beatrice and Tom and the boys took shelter a few years into the tenure. Less likely to suffer from lighthouse keeper's syndrome than staying down here with me, or in the tiny rooms at Abbey's base. 
when electric replaced paraffin. We're talking late 1950s. The lamps didn't need round-the-clock attention, so attendance no longer lived in. Full automation followed, but just for me, on the rocks. The channel had shifted. The top light, my shiny red metal mate, was defunct, deactivated, and eventually demolished. I was alone again, stuck out on a limb, marking this hazard all by myself. I can feel him even now. But I know it's just a ghost, a memory, an itch. Perhaps if Abby had still been there, he could have been some help that night in March. Danger, beware of fast tides, hidden channels and quicksands. Summer, June, July, August. This summer sun warming my stones is welcome. I've felt off balance since the accident and I hear the investigations are ongoing, as too, I assume, is the rigmarole around insurance. I feel discombobulated, all at sea. This hasn't happened to me before, although I've heard talk of it. Those not used to boats, resisting the motion, unable to keep their footing on board, then later noticing it impossible to stand up straight when they find themselves back on dry land. My weight has shifted like that. I'm misaligned, wumbly, off-kilter. Of the unusual occupations of today, lighthouse keeping is one field you might legitimately expect to be reserved for men only. But it isn't. Mrs Parkinson of Lancashire is a lighthouse keeper in her own right. Twice a day, Mrs Parkinson makes her rounds, and it's a good job she doesn't get dizzy on heights. I'm glad of today's storytelling. It's a distraction from my woes, especially with the sea flat calm and lots of the birds, especially our international visitors, off elsewhere. Except the skylarks, of course. There's always lark song rising out of the long grasses somewhere behind me. Beatrice has just breezed in with a smell of fresh laundry about her. Dusters at the ready to buff my curved metal reflectors. This hot spell means she's not as wrapped up against the elements as she often is. In fact, she's quite dolled up in a checked cotton dress, cap-sleeved and cinched at the waist with a bright red belt, and Mary Jane shoes, not the usual gum boots. Beads round her neck too, and a beret. Although she always wears a hat. It's her answer to the gusty winds. She and Tom are off up Glasson Dock, she says, across the fields and various footbridges to Kendall Hill, then up Dobbs Lane and back along Marsh Lane when they're done. See if they can't get a nice bit of wild salmon off that crook farm fella, since Tom hasn't been able to go out himself, what with his cold. A cold in the middle of summer, she says. Who'd have thought? They're going to have a wee nip in the caribou, Dalton or Victoria. Or all three, she laughs. That'll perk him up. Someone might even stand them a drink. You never know. Beatrice has become quite the celebrity of late. The magazines have been clamouring to get a story about the only woman lighthouse keeper in Britain. A snap or two of her in her wellies and tweed. A hair all set. She's even had a film made about her by Pathé. A load of technicians trooped in here with a camera and lights and no end of gubbins, winched it all up with ropes and shot footage of her unscrewing the glass chimneys from the lamps and filling the reservoirs from the rusting metal can mark shell and striking a match to the wicks. The chap said she was lighting the lamps of her churches. They that go down to the sea in ships and occupy their business in great waters. These men see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. 
for at his word the stormy wind ariseth, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They are carried up to the heaven, and down again to the deep, their soul melteth away because of the trouble. They reel to and fro, and stagger like a drunken man, and are at their wits' end. So when they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, he delivereth them out of their distress, for he maketh the storm to cease, so that the waves thereof are still. Now, Beatrice is recounting a tale she got from Jessica, who told her of Glass and Doc's very own Miss Havisham. Jilted at the altar steps, this poor woman never went out again in broad daylight, and left uncollected her cottage rents. Glasson is a place I've never been, never seen, although I serve it. It didn't exist until they dug the boat basin and fitted it with special lock gates to keep vessels on an even keel. That's something I can only dream about right now. This purpose-built drop-off point is credited with lengthening the life of the port of Lancaster for the import and export of stuff. Cotton, rum, sugar, timber, tobacco, gunpowder, slaves. And it's pleasant enough by all accounts. Although the canal side, shipyard and smokehouse are still raked by the same boisterous breezes as we are, despite being upstream. The stories of the lost souls continue as I hear about Bill Robinson, a weathered sea rover who lived in the custom house loft and cast off every morning to fish alone. Never any later than one hour after slack water, one day dragging back a drowned boy snagged in his nets. I hear about a spluttering of old men rooted at the top of Tidebarn Hill, mesmerised by the view of the sparkling salt marshes, spellbound. Miss the tide turning and you'll spot the outflowing sea as swift glistening water slipping off the troublesome sandbanks via channels carved in the shining wet mudflats, the exposed wash suddenly covered with something new, a writhing mass of shorebirds setting up a real Saturday night clamour, scrabbling to spear mollusks taken by surprise, jabbing the beaks at the tastiest morsels. I'll not complain, those blasted barnacles will only end up latching onto me otherwise. Depending on the time of year, the rich pickings are enjoyed by all kinds, including the oyster catcher, whose orange bill is outglared only by the sun, and the red shank, with similarly vibrant legs. There are dunlin, and sometimes snipe, turnstones and sandpipers, knots in flocks, and of course, there are plover. The largest wader is the curlew, announcing its arrival or departure with an intense rising rippling call, wibbling like the blades lifting a helicopter. The silver slivers of streams chasing the sea burbling away from the land look from on high like the inner workings of hearts or minds, arteries and veins, atria and ventricles. Out here, on the fields regularly washed by the sea, you'll find sheep grazing, mule ewes helping themselves to the abundance of samphire and sorrel, growing freely from June through to September. Sea lavender and seaweeds. It's not the usual diet for lambs, but it gives this lot's meat a distinctive light flavour. Sweet, not salty like you'd think, and a tender texture that's apparently a delicacy in France. Cockerham salt marsh lamb comes into season around now, so it's busy with the noise of Caroline and her husband's quad bike zipping about, making sure the flock is in fine fettle, not stuck in a gully or anything. The Bankend Farm sheepdog, Tess, is just as hard-working helping keep the lambs safe from the tides, 
pelting past pink thrift, yellow vetch and white campions to head them off, just like nip shoulder. A recipe for potted shrimps. 250 grams of cooked Morecambe Bay shrimps. 150 grams of butter. Good pinches of salt, cayenne pepper and nutmeg. Autumn. September, October, November. All heal. All heal. I'm praying some kind soul might make me a nighttime drink with valerian. A natural sedative growing near here. Planted by the monks in their medicinal herb garden back in the day. I could use a little anaesthesia right now. It turns out I suffered substantial damage from the impact, which nudged the whole of my top half a foot off centre, snapped my metal strengthening bands and punched a hole in my side. Helen from the Port Authority said she was horrified and the engineers thought I might not even survive the winter, rough seas likely dislodging even more of my stonework. They've recommended extensive dismantling and rebuilding on shore. In other words, at low tide, no mean feet, and the necessary approvals, licences, permissions and quotes are now in. My fate has been decided. Work starts tomorrow, when the scaffolders arrive. They'll have to fix the rig to me tight to keep it from shifting, like the deep-rooted sea holly clinging to the rocks, coping with regular inundations. Sedums thrive here too. Another pioneer plant. Their pink stars of flowers still lighting up the coastline in September, and oxide daisies with yellow and white heads bobbing beneath the cliff faces of landslides, where the sea is gradually reclaiming the reclaimed land, the cattle of their name methodically making the way around the meadows above. My mind is taken off the imminent work with the flyby of a pair of peewits. A warning, angry crackle, then a whooping call to match their swooping in circles as they decide on a suitable landing spot beside the old abbey. I don't see them alight, but I'll wager the grazing cows barely bat an eyelid at the incomers, despite the feathery fascinators. They're not an unusual sight, having been nesting on the wet leaves all summer. We're all used to their showy headwear, as if they're off to a wedding or Lapwing's Day at the races. My own headdress is the centre of attention right now. A crane has been installed to take me apart, piece by piece. It's a delicate exercise. The tides and the weather and the daylight hours have to be right. First to go is my cast-iron lantern. Off with his head! I've been struck by lightning. Of course I have. So I'm expecting a cracking headache. Lifted, swung round and gently placed on the beach. That bit of me is left high and dry before being hoisted onto a low loader. Bound for restoration in Cumbria. That's where the loon rises, the pure, health-giving river. So I have hope. I'm going back to my roots in a way. I watch the waves. The sea, when it pushes in, rushes in, is surging, swirling, sweeping. On springs it can bring one of the bay's three boars, powering in bombing it, going at a proper rate of knots. We make a fuss about the tides being tricksters, but it's not so bad if you know what you're doing. And they do have their advantages. They're fishing for one. Thomas maintains the Viking technique of half netting. Half meaning open sea in Old Norse, I heard him telling young Bob. The time for this is on an ebb tide, offering a window of at most three hours twice a day, one of them in the middle of the night, and not permitted on weekends. As the sea rushes away from the land, the half-netters wade out into the river. Margaret, 
the only female half-netter in the country, included. She told Natasha from the newspaper about being entranced by the bright green bioluminescence in the water. At night, the stars just shower down because there's no light pollution. It's really tranquil, and on a good, clear, dark night, when it's been dry and the water's very salty, this place becomes a magical fairyland, transformed by phosphorescence. They look almost biblical, with the 18-foot-long wooden beam resting on their shoulders. Generations-old local knowledge picks the spot, where they lower their giant butterfly net into the current and let the two pockets, or pokes, stream out towards the sea. The fisherman, or fisherwoman, stands behind the net, thigh-deep, waist-deep, chest-deep in water, grasping the central of three upright poles and waiting for the wild salmon and sea trout that have run upstream on the filling tide to turn back once they meet the cold flow of the river. You might see a wake in the water from a big fish and, when one swims into a poke, the half-netter tilts the pole backwards to scoop the frame up, snagging the fish, tying the catch there until returning to shore once the catch is over. The entire process is like seamless choreography. In the old days, before the Parkinson's, back with the rabies, another way of catching fish was with a bork trap, built on the beach, where not just salmon and trout, but also mullet, place and codling would be stranded on the ebb behind a barrier of willow or hazel panels fixed between wooden stanchions. On the morning tide of new moon and full, the catch would be claimed by the local clergy as a kind of tax, and this gave it the moniker Vicar's Tide. I still remember Francis Raby, the first keeper, bemoaning the vicar's tide. I've mouths to feed, he used to complain to his son Henry. I'm only on £25 a year. Still, Francis took advantage of the shrimping, cockling and muscling around and about come autumn, earning a bit of extra cash by weaving baskets for the shellfish gatherers. Henry, meanwhile, was unperturbed, following in his father's footsteps and even passing the lights on to his own son Dick and Dick's younger sister. Janet. The sea washes away the ills of men, is a phrase I once heard, and I wonder if the skipper of the cargo vessel that hit me back in March has been doused in enough brine to come back up clean. Conscience clear. Unprecedented was the word Helen used. She'd never heard of a ship hitting a lighthouse, ever. I suppose us Lancastrians are writing world history, again. I still don't know what actually happened. I'm in the dark, you might say, and not just because my lantern's been removed. All I know is, I'm thankful the ship, though large, was at least light. If she'd been at a plimsoll line, carrying the port's maximum deadweight load of just shy of 4,000 tonnes, I doubt we'd be having this conversation. That's the scar of Plover Scar Box ticked. Meanwhile, I could do worse than be named after the adaptable Plover. Clever little birds they are, with eggs camouflaged to resemble the pebbles on which they are laid, and a knack of feigning injury should the nest come under threat, running the opposite way, trailing a wing and calling loudly to tempt predators after them. I can see a couple now, luring prey to the surface of the wash by tapping their feet to mimic raindrops, while their other feathered friends are just turning over mermaids' purses strewn along the high-water mark and picking through the fisherman's soap. Those polystyrene egg clouds born of the common whelk. I can also see white, hairy, fairy-like fluff bobbing up and down, down and up, 
before disappearing abruptly as snacks for fish or taking on water and slowly submerging. The reed mace, or bulrushes as Beatrice calls them, have gone to seed and the mini parachutes are now carried by the breeze from the horse paddock up onto the shore path, over the kissing gates, down past the splash zone to the waves. The lucky ones make landfall further along the coast, perhaps even take up residency, like the namesake of Sunderland's Cotton Tree Cottage, which sprouted to 50 foot, right there where it had disembarked from its transatlantic travels some 200 years before. It was toppled on New Year's Day in one of our famous storms. Welcome to the Lancashire coast. Wrecked with a cargo of lace, laden with peas, with red and black flannel. With silk, with flour and lard. Wrecked, carrying a cargo of palm oil and seed, of cotton, of copper ore, of mugs, sheep and treacle. Of cotton, fruit and meat. Winter. December, January, February. Winter sees an upsurge in wildlife, with widgeons joining shell ducks, swans and geese checking out the salt marshes and mud flats for eelgrass, as well as insects, mollusks and other small invertebrates on the menu at low tide. Six hours apart, field voles, also hunting the water's edge, are forced to rush landwards to escape the rising tide, in turn attracting short-eared owls and hen harriers. Bigger mammals include fallow deer swimming the river where otters and seals are sometimes spotted. Coastal populations of meadow pipits, linnets and our regulars, the skylarks, swell in winter as they escape the worst of the weather on upland heaths and high moorlands. It gets like a holiday resort for birds round here at this time of year, like Blackpool back in the day. In storm conditions, the sea is heaving, the winds battering, the waves thundering. The boats, any unfortunate enough to be caught up in it, rolling, tossed about on the boiling waters. A fair wind can change rapidly to a squall, mark my words. A blunk can take hold quite suddenly. Every time a storm hits, it is now given a name, and a few days after the collision, all and sundry were talking about the weather that blew up out of nowhere, so wasn't honoured in advance. The storm with no name. I shrugged that it was like the ship with no name that bounced off and went on its way. And now we are back in the eye of storm season. Not exactly ideal for the delicate process of taking a lighthouse apart stone by stone and putting it back together, piece by piece, like an immense jigsaw puzzle. Out here, on their scaffolding, the Maryport men are slashed by winds, thrashed by the same waves heard crashing the shingle, slapped by horizontal rain, snapped by hailstones. The seaward stone wall of Abbey Lighthouse Cottage is its own kink for bracing against severe gale force 9, storm force 10, violent storm 11, hurricane 12. Very high waves with long overhanging crests. The resulting foam, in great patches, is blown in dense white streaks along the direction of the wind. On the whole, the surface of the sea takes on a white appearance. The tumbling of the sea becomes heavy and shock-like. Visibility affected. Seldom experienced inland. Trees uprooted. Considerable structural damage occurs. In December, the beach is littered with debris, 
My white stones are scattered along the shore, like the bones of the monks when the graves in the Caucasus and Abbey burial ground were claimed by the waves, and their contents washed back up some days later. It's as if the sea was reminding the remaining white cannons that it would never be tamed, never be safe to navigate, whatever they tried. The brothers didn't just build the priory at Caucasus. They were the first to erect a beacon on this spot. Indeed, on this whole coast, some 800 years ago. Of my own beacon, over 200 stone blocks have now been labelled up, lifted off and laid out. They've taken me right down to the bottom of the damaged layer. And they've discovered the secret I've kept all these years. I'm actually a lighthouse within a lighthouse. It's been so long I'd almost forgotten it myself. But about ten years after they first put me up, they realised I wouldn't withstand the whipping winds and stripping spinthrift much longer, so they added another casing of stone. My original outline hasn't seen the light of day since. On a sunny day, it's quite nice to take off your overcoat for a short spell. You really feel the benefit putting it back on when the cold threatens to set in. Now my stones have been dressed, ready for reuse. They can start to put me together again. Which they do in the new year. Recladding me according to the numbers they've made a note of, so that I seem the same from the outside. Helen says that's important, which is thoughtful. She comes down to tell me that there will be a few changes. But, to be honest, that's only to be expected. My internal brick dome and the small room with the fireplace, used in emergencies on occasion by the rabies. They wouldn't be reinstated, but nobody goes in there anymore, so I don't suppose it matters. They're keeping the door, though, and I like that. It looks as if you could come inside if you wanted to. Helen likes that, too. She tells me that the works are now due to complete in May. That'll be 170 years since I was built and became part of the Raby family, up to Beatrice taking over from Janet at the end of 1945. Beatrice used to tell me stories about other lady lighthouse keepers, like Peggy Braithwaite at Walney Island across the bay from us. She ended up being the last female principal keeper in England, and Walney was the last manned, or womaned, lighthouse in the British Isles. Beatrice was particularly fond of talking about Mrs Williams round the Irish Sea on the Wirral, minding the entrance to the Horses Channel and the port of Liverpool. Very important. Mary and her husband, another Thomas, with serial PKs and moved from Landudno to Hoylake to Liso back in 1892. It's the oldest brick-built lighthouse there is, built on cotton bales that came off a ship in a storm, and the family lived in. Mary's piano was delivered. Dismantled, then drawn up and in through the window of the living quarters, using a system of pulleys. The same year, Mary had her eighth child, daughter Dora. It must have been like the old woman who lived in a shoe laughed Beatrice. Mary kept the light until it was discontinued, 1908. Here at Pluverscar, the light has never gone out. Even while I've been in bits, I've flashed white every two seconds from a temporary lantern fixed to the scaffolding. I watch. I wait. Back. Forth. Those waves. Forth. Back. Ebb. Flow. The tide does its dance like the murmurating birds. Flow. Ebb. I wait. I watch.